Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 6, or the text is right there on your screen for you. Um, So we're in the part of the book of Revelation where people like us can, uh, we could start to have a really hard time interpreting the symbols of John's vision. I mean, here in this chapter, there are living creatures and colored horses and earthquakes and eclipses and stars falling falling from the sky and there's an angry lamb. What does it all mean? Um, Add into the mix the far greater spiritual matter of the counterintuitive nature of the gospel, the fact that we have a hard time hearing and receiving the straightforward teaching of Jesus and the scriptures. And um, have you got yourself some fairly difficult reading? And so we'd better get some help. So uh, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, whenever we read and hear and consider your word, we always need your help. We need supernatural help. We need divine help. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. In and of ourselves, we wouldn't be able to stand your word, let alone embrace it and rest upon it for the transformation of our lives with you. So we ask for your help now in the name of the one who wants it for us better than we do ourselves. In the name of the Lord Jesus, your son, our brother, and our mediator. Amen. Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he, the Lamb, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When the Lamb opened the sixth seal, 
I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, <clears throat> let's remember briefly where we are in the arc of the book. Uh, Jesus gave John this vision sometime in the mid-60s A.D. Uh, that's the 0060s, not the 1960s when people were having visions like this because of drugs. <laughs> uh, it's not a vision like that. <clears throat> uh, this was a, a vision that Jesus gave to John toward the... Um, the tail end of the time that's recorded in Luke's book of Acts. It was before the Romans would siege Jerusalem and destroy the temple in 70 AD. Uh, that's the topic of uh, much of the prophecy of the book of Revelation. So things were <clears throat> heating up in the Roman Empire. The Christian church was facing difficulties and persecution, largely instigated by the ethnic Jews who rejected their Messiah. Uh, as the kingdom of Jesus advanced and as it grew and spread among the nations, it encountered conflict, especially with the old people of the old temple, the old Jerusalem, who were supposed to have matured and bloomed into this kingdom by embracing Christ as king, but who were instead uh, stunted and malformed by their hardness of heart, and they became evil uh, because they resisted Jesus. It's like in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Saruman, the white wizard, he was supposed to be the best and greatest of the wizards. Yet he betrayed his comrades and he set himself against all that is good and he became evil. But when Gandalf, the gray wizard, uh, dies and is reborn, he becomes the new white wizard, better and greater and ultimately victorious. And when he identifies himself, he says, I am Saruman, or rather Saruman as he should have been. So the church is Israel, or rather Israel as it should have been, the people of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. The new is the old as it was meant to become. It is the old grown to fruition, the old fulfilled. Really, it's the old died and reborn, the old become new. That's the church. And because it's the same as the old, but not the same, the old become new finds itself in conflict with the old that refused to become new. And this was a very difficult place to be for the early church. In fact, the church finds itself in this place of tension and conflict wherever it goes. So <clears throat> Jesus gave John this vision to encourage the church to enduring faithfulness, to the continued proclamation of the gospel, bearing witness to the true Messiah, to the true King, 
Jesus calls us to trust him as the sovereign Lord, even when his sovereign will seems unbearable. He assures us that he is indeed the sovereign Lord. This is why he gives John the vision of his ascension, which we looked at last week from chapter 5. It is good news for us. It's the very best news that Jesus Christ is Lord. But this is something we usually need to hang on to by faith because life is not all rosy victory after apparent victory. Life is filled with apparent defeats and setbacks and conflicts and hardships. It's natural for us to actually expect that the kingdom of God advancing would mean that these things disappear. They, gr- they go away, whether gradually or instantly, right? Wouldn't it be nice if once you became a Christian, Jesus just snapped his fingers and made all your troubles go away. But if he were, if he were going to do that, he might as well have done it right at the very beginning of his reign. But apparently the good Lord has other plans. Immediately upon his ascension to God's throne, he could have made all things new and right. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to accept. But the conflicts that we face as his people in the world are arranged by him, by the sovereign Lord Jesus himself. When his faithful ones face conflict because of our testimony about Jesus, this is not evidence that the Lord has abandoned us. It's not evidence that he's not, after all, sovereign. It's not evidence that he has turned against us in his wrath. When his faithful ones face conflict because of our testimony, this is evidence that things are unfolding precisely according to his plan. This is how he exercises God's authority in the earth. This is how he advances his kingdom among the nations of the world. That's what this chapter is about. Jesus has just been declared to be the only one worthy to take up the scroll from God's right hand, to to take up the symbol of God's own authority and kingship, and to open its seals and to look into it and begin to execute God's rule and and his judgments. The Lamb is the king and judge of all people everywhere. He's the king and judge of of all history. This means that not only is Jesus the one who declares what is good and evil, That's what a judge does. He declares what is good and evil. But it also means he's the one who makes everything right for his people. Because that's the kind of justice that biblical judges bring. Ultimately, his faithful ones will be revealed as vindicated for trusting in him. And his enemies will be exposed as enemies of the true king. And that's where all this scroll business is headed. Toward the king's justice which is the very best news for his people, and it's the worst news for those who've opposed him and and have opposed his people and his kingdom. So you've got this wonderful, inspiring, encouraging vision in chapter 5 of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God, the true king, ascending to to reign at God's right hand. He's going to make things right, so he takes up the scroll, and we all watch him with great anticipation to see the wonderful things that happen when he opens it. And at first, for a brief moment at least, things seem great says in verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So this is good. Jesus opens the first of the seven seals on the scroll, 
It's just the preliminaries to the real substance contained within the scroll. And it's a tremendous vision of the, the victorious king himself coming to advance his kingdom in the world. He's coming in judgment to right all wrongs and to bring true justice. That's what the living creatures mean when they call him forth at the opening of these seals with the word, come. Come is exactly what Jesus will do. He'll come from heaven to earth in judgment. He'll come in the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of his word. And eventually he'll come once and for all to judge the living and the dead. That word is used that way throughout the book of Revelation. And it's the final prayer of his people at the end of the book and at the end of the, the scriptures. Come, Lord Jesus. And behold, here he comes on his white horse. So this is the spiritual vision that John sees about the very start of Christ's reign, just after his ascension into heaven. It really does describe the events which take place immediately after Jesus ascended into heaven. He poured out his spirit on the disciples and they preached the word of the gospel. This is him riding forth, conquering as he conquers. They preached the, the word of the gospel with faithfulness and boldness and thousands upon thousands were added to the kingdom of God. But then we see in this vision that he opens the second seal and the lamb opens the third seal and the fourth and out comes conflict and suffering and death. I mean, these colored horses seem like bad news, don't they? They've been portrayed in art throughout history as terrors. They've been called by scholars, satanic forces. But this is what happens when the lamb opens the seals of the scroll of God's kingdom. This is what happens when glorious angels call for the victorious Lord to ride forth in judgment. This is what happens as God's plan unfolds. The truth might be unsettling, but this is what happens as his kingdom advances through the faithful proclamation of the gospel by his people in the church. These horses and their riders, they aren't just some cosmic supernatural terrors. They represent the conflicts that are faced by faithful Christians as the Lord himself leads us in the ways of his kingdom. The gospel doesn't just win friends. It also makes enemies just like Jesus had told his disciples it would. In fact, speaking of Jesus' prophecies, sometime, uh, we can't take the time to do it now, but you should read his words in uh, Matthew 24 uh, or Mark 13 or Luke 21. They're all parallel passages. Uh, he talks about the same things with his disciples that we read about here in this section of Revelation. A lot of times word for word. So, But this is what Jesus told his disciples would happen in the context of preparing them to endure persecution as his people, he said in Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is like the, the rider on the red horse. For I have come, he continues, to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So what does it mean? What does it mean that the lamb is now on the throne? It means the shriveling up of the old and the growing fullness of the new. It means death and the pangs of rebirth. 
it means the old become new will find itself in conflict with the old that refused to become new. And the beginning of that time is recorded in the book of Acts also, immediately following the glorious triumph of the ascended Christ and Pentecost and the baptism of thousands of people into Christ's body. The old began to violently persecute the new. Those who had refused to become new, those who had refused to bend the knee to Christ, began uh, to enter into conflict with those who did. <clears throat> the Lord's people received the same treatment as the Lord himself. Not only did Jesus predict this during his time on earth in order to prepare his people to suffer as he himself would suffer, but now he reveals this vision to John, this vision of the heavenly throne and the opening of the scroll to say, don't worry, everything is going exactly according to plan. Even that last horse, horse that's ridden by death with Hades following. Jesus has already declared to John in chapter 1, Fear not, I have the keys of death and Hades. Right? Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And as he opens the seals of the scroll, his unstoppable kingdom advances. And this is what it looks like. This is how. It's like Tertullian said 1,800 years ago, we multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. So Jesus is the faithful witness, the great martyr, whose blood gave new life to the whole church. And as his people have been faithful witnesses like him, even unto death, people like Stephen in Acts 7 or James in Acts 12, and eventually most of the apostles and many Christians from, uh, from throughout history in the church. It has been common for the, the death of faithful witnesses, the death of the martyrs, to be used of the Lord to bring new life in his kingdom and to advance his kingdom. Just as he made his own death to serve his purposes, he makes the death of each of his martyrs to serve his purposes. None of his faithful ones have died in vain ever. As it says in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So we want Jesus to reign. We want him to make all things new. We want him to bring his justice. And this is exactly what he's doing. But this is something strange about the good judgments of God. They often look like terrible things happening. They often look like victories for the devil. They often look like things getting worse for the church, at least for a while. And so that is a matter for your faith, for your trust in him. Because it hardly makes any sense at all when you look at it with your eyes. It's even difficult for the faithful martyrs to endure. As it says in verse 9, when the lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the martyrs, they're faithful to the end, just as Jesus has called us all to be. But this strange way of Jesus advancing his kingdom through conflict like this, is still a struggle, even for them, even for the ones who are faithful to the end. They confess that he is sovereign, that 
He must be in command of their deaths, but they still cry out with a loud voice, How long before you'll judge? How long before, before you'll bring justice and make things right? It doesn't appear, even to the faithful ones, like he's even working on it. And the answer that they get is not an easy one to hear. He says to them, Just a little longer, until all my faithful witnesses have been killed as you have. I am at work, he says. Here's my plan for fixing the world. It's going to get much worse before it gets better. You might never see justice in this life. You might die before you see it. And this is precisely how the Lord is bringing his justice and his kingdom. I mean, this king's judgments are unbearable. And this is just the opening of the seals on the scroll. What will we find when the contents of the scroll are proclaimed? What will the substance of his judgments be like? His judgments are unbearable. And here's the great lesson for us. You can't judge his judgments. You can't judge his judgments. You must submit to them. You can either entrust yourself to his judgments, confessing that even though they seem unendurable, they must be good. Or you can try to resist them with the clear warning that resistance is futile. Uh, one of those ways has to be sheer folly, right? Either believing Christ's word that seems untrue or opposing the unstoppable judgments of the king. So if it's true that Jesus died for our sins, if it's true that he rose from the dead for our new life with God, if it's true that he ascended to God's throne on our behalf, then entrusting yourself to his judgments, even if you can't understand them, that is real wisdom. And opposing him, resisting him, refusing him, if all those things are true, that's the real folly. As it says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? So this is the... The ultimate folly of the old that refused to become new. They try to hide from the Lord who sees all. They would rather be stoned to death than face his judgment. They would rather be buried alive than face the lamb. And the real insanity, the real irony of it, isn't just that it's impossible to escape the Lord's judgments because he's Lord. The real irony is that those who resist the Lord are resisting true life and freedom and glory and love because they're resisting the lamb. They're trying to find refuge from him, which is impossible because they believe it is impossible to stand in his presence or to bear his face being turned upon us. But that is the very thing the lamb has made possible. And we should all be running to him for refuge instead of trying to run away from him, which is impossible. His wrath, the lamb's wrath, 
is the wrath of love. Every time you see the lamb, that word lamb, as it refers to Jesus in the book of Revelation, it's meant to remind you of the sacrificial love of Jesus by which he laid down his life on the cross for us and for our forgiveness. So when all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him, when he ascended to the throne of God to rule over all and to execute God's judgments in the world, he didn't cease to be the lamb who had been slain. It is the lamb who was slain, who rules the kingdom of God, who executes the judgments of God, who will restore all things and bring justice in his way, in his way. The wrath of the lamb is the wrath of redeeming love, as uh, Thomas Torrance said, which I quoted in this week's email newsletter. The wrath of the lamb is the wrath of redeeming love. It's the rejection of evil. I'm not sure we can entirely wrap our minds around that. Remember, we can't judge his judgments. The one who is evil cannot fully comprehend or predict or judge the wrath of the one who is good. And that's what Jesus calls us. He calls us evil and he says there's only one good. So we can't fully comprehend or predict or judge the wrath of the one who is good. The wrath of the good will seem intolerable and unbearable to the evil. But by his spirit, by his grace, by faith, we can confess, at least, perhaps beyond our understanding, that his judgment, even his wrath, is good. In Ezekiel 14, when God is talking about executing this very same wrath, with a lot of the same imagery, he says, After you see the results of my wrath, then you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done. So if the good lamb has wrath, it must be good. And we cannot resent him or condemn him for it or for how he executes it or for how long it takes him to do that. If you were to find yourself on the receiving end of his wrath, you couldn't blame him for having wrath. The wrath of a lamb who was slain, it's not some necessary evil. The wrath of the lamb is good, whether we understand it or not, whether we like it or not. And he writes, says, the, the lamb's anger is the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that is unloving. The only people who should be afraid of it are those who are determined to resist the call of love, the call of the one who is love incarnate. The call of love is for the old to become new through faith in Jesus Christ. The call of love is to submit your judgment to the lamb who was slain to the only one who's worthy to judge. Let him be the judge. The call of love is to follow his lead, to advance his kingdom in his way through faithfulness, <clears throat> through the proclamation of the gospel, through the hardships and humiliation and suffering and conflict that that brings, and then on to vindication and glory and justice when he makes all things new. The call of love is to die and be reborn 
by the spirit of love. And yes, that feels like dying. Yes, that means conflict with the world that resists such love. But it is the call of love. It's the way of the Lamb, who is the Lord of love. It's the way of his kingdom, his kingdom that advances and nothing can stop it. And one day, every eye will see it. Every eye is going to see it. Every eye is going to see him. And when he brings the justice that only he can bring, then his faithful ones will be vindicated for having trusted him and having followed him and his ways, even if it all seems like unbearable madness now. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you've called us into your kingdom of love. And it seems strange to us that it would, it would involve so much conflict for so long. Your judgments are unsearchable and your ways are higher than ours. We trust you, that you are good that your way is best because you laid down your life for us after all and you took it up again for us. You alone are worthy. So we pray that you would help us to rest in you and to follow you wherever it may lead us. We pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat>